Welcome to Nakla Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood Isaac. I'm so excited that Nakla Radio is now available on iTunes, and I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. So the latest issue of the Nakla Report on prisons, punishment, and policing in the Americas is also now out online, so you can check that out at nakla.org and read a few articles from the issue. Uh, today, I'm joined by report contributor Moira Burse, who's a communications manager at Amazon Watch, which is an organization that works to protect the Amazon rainforest and the global climate by supporting indigenous peoples. So Moira's article for the report looks at how judges, politicians, and private companies have criminalized protest in order to silence environmental human rights defenders uh, throughout the region. Moira, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, all things considered. Thanks. Mm -hmm. How about you? I'm doing all right, yeah. So thanks so much for joining us today. Um, Sure. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to touch on a few um, different themes that you bring up in the article, which is super wide ranging um, and fantastic. I encourage people to subscribe to the report and read it. Um, But just to start us off, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, your work, where you worked before Amazon Watch, what your experience has been um, working in the region and and what kind of brought you to uh, the specific article. Sure. Well, um, I have worked for many years in the intersection between human rights and environmental protection in Latin America, currently with Amazon Watch. And, and you know, here our focus is a lot on indigenous peoples, supporting indigenous communities and organizations and working with them to protect their territories and, and you know, by, by default in many ways, protect the environment and the climate. Um, and previous to this, I was working with Peace Brigades International and the Fellowship of Reconciliation Peace Presence in Colombia. So both in DC doing advocacy work for a time and, and then in the field in Colombia working on human rights accompaniment of human rights defenders, environmental activists, indigenous communities, Afro-Columbian communities as they fought to protect their, their rights and territories. So this issue of criminalization, you know, is one that in my work has continued to to come up went from you know in in Colombia a lot of human rights activists are automatically assumed to be or <laughs> have been automatically assumed to be allied with the guerrilla groups because they're speaking out against the government um, and more and more in my re- more recent work with a greater focus on um, the environmental land rights world have seen how activists and community leaders have themselves been criminalized and demonized for pushing back against environmental destruction, land grabbing, and the like. So your article, you know, as you, you're talking about criminalization, um, which is a maybe a broader category than um, one might initially think. So there's these various tactics that the that the state and private companies and kind of a, a confluence of the two have have used to try and pretty effectively um, silence um, environmental human rights organizers and activists. So there's not just physical violence involved here, which is, of course, a huge part of this, but there's, um, you know, harassment and you talk about smear campaigns, like not just um, filing, you know, there's this also like the deluge of, of legal complaints that target individual organizers, but also groups. Um, but there's, I'm, I'm particularly interested in this attack on people's reputations. Um, and you talk about kind of framing 
people as criminals, the, the way that doing jail time affects people, not just in a physical sense, but their relationship to their communities, which is such a big part of organizing and maintaining a cohesive movement. Um, so, so maybe you can, uh, so, so there's, so there's the physical violence, there's, uh, arresting mm-hmm. people and, and you detail a few cases, like there's the one with a mayor who holds, uh, what is essentially a town hall, and then uh, accuses the people who attended it of having kidnapped him and right. tries to charge them with kidnapping, even though he, you know, set up this town hall with them. So, so, th- so criminalization is like it takes on this this pretty extreme quality of like by any means by by means that are maybe even absurd to us mm-hmm. finding mm-hmm. a way to file legal charges against organizers against people who are advocating for really i mean in some cases their constitutional right to be right. you know uh somehow acknowledged in in the process of of opening land to private companies um so maybe you know there's there's the legal charges physical violence and and the smear campaigns um what what do you think um, I guess the, the, this like varied approach to criminalizing, um, these activists, organizers, defenders of the environment, what is, is, is it geared towards simply like cutting off the movements? Is it about a more like international audience trying to kind of demonize these people on a larger scale? Yeah, I think it's about both of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, on the one hand, um, you know, I think, and I say this in the piece that, um, a lot of, you know, actors have turned to criminalization as a slightly, you know, <laughs> nicer tactic rather than just, you know, straight up killing activists, which of course is something that's happened plenty in Latin America and continues to happen. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, but criminalization in many ways can be less, you know, problematic, shall we say, you know, for, for the powers that be. And so, um, and particularly so when you're, when they're able to, right, use the smear campaigns, use the demonization to create this, this R around this person that it, that is, you know, that is, that they're a bad person, that they're a criminal and, and whatnot. And so the support for them dries up. And of course, when, you know, environmental and land rights activists and indigenous activists are are trying to wage campaigns to protect their land to fight back against you know oil companies say that want to drill in their in their territory they you know one of the main resources that they have at their disposal is w- wider community and international community support and so if they are um if they're built up to be criminals or you know have these spotty records then garnering that kind of support or maintaining it is way more problematic. So I think it has both, um, both sort of audiences in mind. And also a key point I think is that, um, it's also, I think a tool that is intended to, and, and sometimes is effective at, you know, really wearing down activists as individuals and also organizations, you know, the kind of money that has to be spent to, you know, to fight legal charges the, you know, the emotional toll that that takes, um, on an individual and also on, an, you know, on their organization, on, on their relationships with their colleagues, with their friends and their families, you know, and sometimes these cases, you know, have been successful at, at sowing doubt amongst family members or amongst close allies. And that, of course, you know, has both practical and emotional effects on, 
on these activists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a um, trend that struck me throughout the region, um, especially thinking about the the recent anniversary of the disappearance of 43. Uh, student teachers in Ayotzinapa in Mexico, um, because one of the one of the women that you talked to, Aura, began her uh, involvement in one of these movements as a teacher in a mm-hmm. rural community. What I'm interested in concerning Aura specifically, and and it's a trend that you bring up, kind of in the article. Um, you know, if if teachers are in a position that is in, it's inherently political and it becomes increasingly politicized as we look at these rural communities. There are a lot of women in that role, it seems. Um, and you do talk about how this harassment, this criminalization has become gendered. Um, you say, you know, men are at a high risk because a lot of these organizers are men, but there's a very specific um, sort of harassment that occurs for female organizers. And, you know, how do you... I mean, I guess, how do we see um, women's specific role in these communities kind of attacked or like mobilized to discredit them? Yeah, well, so, yeah, similarly, um, you know, I don't want to speak for for Aura. Actually, she often goes mm-hmm. by Lolita, so I'll probably that's oh, how I okay. know her as. Okay. <laughs> that's OK. Um, uh, and so. But, but yeah, she did indeed, you know, sort of begin her activism as a teacher. And I think that, you know, she had, she did talk to me and not all of this, of course, made it into the, the text of the article, but about that helping to, you know, to politicize her and to help her, you know, see the dynamics in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, you know, suffered the, when, as she became a more, pro- more and more prominent leader, became, you know, under threat from criminalization attempts of, of many kinds. I mean, she's had, she's had all kinds of charges filed against her. And, you know, as you say, some of that has also taken a a gendered uh, bent, shall we say? I mean, she talked about having been, you know, threatened when she was arrested, threatened with rape, um, told about all the, you know, all of the sexual violence that she would have to confront in prison, um, and, you know, and obviously, um, those, you know, the, the psychological effects of those kinds of threats were, were really hard for her. Part of what she says that she's done to, to confront, you know, the, the pain and the difficulty of dealing with these kinds of, um, threats and attacks is, is by creating community, both within her, within her home community, but then also with, with allies and friends, you know, throughout Guatemala and throughout the world. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it, something I, I don't mention in the article, but, um, but actually I just had the pleasure of supporting this, uh, speaking to her to the U S of a, um, indigenous activist named Auda also Auda Tigria Cristancho from the Uwa people of Colombia. And one of the things that she was explaining is that though in her community, as, as she herself said, in many com- indigenous communities in Latin America, you know, there's a fair bit of machismo, (laughs) Um, you know, there's a fair bit of of patriarchy, but that in her community, at least there has been herself included sort of a, a newer wave of, of female leadership and that she attributes that in part to, you know, the fact that 
many of the men in her community a few years ago were criminalized, were thrown in jail, um, or in a few other cases, you know, were under threat from either the military or, or the FARC and so had to go into hiding. And so women had to step up. Um, or, mm-hmm. or perhaps she would say, you know, there was an opening for them to step up. Mm-hmm. And so, but then of course, you know, they, as leaders, as new leaders themselves can end up becoming targets. Um, and as women, you know, targeted in, in specific sexualized ways as well. When it comes to, um, the, the situation on the ground, do you describe a, a blending of, of, um, police forces, but also private, uh, company security forces. Mm-hmm. And there's some details in the article of, of violence committed by, uh, company employees. It's, it's interesting when you, when you take a step back and you look at the, um, the larger framework of the system, there's also a, a blending of, uh, corporate and state interests and money. You talk about how, uh, the Peruvian Yanacocha and Conga mines are, are funded by the IFC. Um, but there's also, um, this, so it's like a, it's a neo-colonial financial structure, but it's also a neo-colonial, um, sort of policing. So you write pretty early in the article, um, this, this neo-colonialism relies on racist attitudes against indigenous and other tribal peoples, providing governments and companies with an excuse to behave as though the resources they encounter belong to them, regardless of the inhabitants of the area or the social and environmental consequences. And of course, as a U.S. citizen, you know, I'm thinking about DAPL, which you immediately bring up right after mm-hmm. that. Um, but I wonder, um, how you see the, I mean, it's hard to say because this is a, the history of this corporate and state, um, entanglement, we could say is, is a pretty long one. Um, and, you know, it really wasn't so long ago that the colonial state in South America was the corporation. So, but I, I you know, in terms of the tactics that are being used to silence these, uh, activists, how does that corporate element play out and then and then also this question of race which is like a it's it's a vulnerability or it's a um it's a dynamic that's kind of ripe for this sort of smear campaign attack i mean it's that's not a new problem up here or or in the southern hemisphere um so yeah how how does that look different i guess is what i'm asking when when we like consider the presence, both the physical presence of like corporate employees in these violent scenes, but also the kind of international global connectivity that a funder like the IFC brings to things. And then the way that this, that racism, there's like a, there's a local reality of racism, like how people feel about very particular groups. And then Mm -hmm. there's a global reality, which really does connect the way that the Lakota Sioux and the Kiche people, for example, are being treated on an international level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, yeah. Yeah. I might start with, I might start with that, the last part of the question about the, about the racism, because mm-hmm. I think you're very right. It is a, it is something that links, you know, yeah, the, the Lakota Sioux and Standing Rock and, you know, yeah. And the, the, the Quechua in, in Ecuador and Peru. And, you know, and I think that, 
in fact, um, you know, one of the things that Amazon Watch has that I've been working on that I have been involved in is actually helping to build some bridges and, and connections between those communities in South America, North America. And that's really exciting that that's building. And I think that that racism is, is part of what, as you, as you alluded to, makes a lot of these communities more vulnerable. And I think that's in part why, you know, indigenous communities, you know, have been, yeah, particularly vulnerable and particularly I hate to use the word victim, but, but I, for lack of a better one, victim to these kinds of tactics because of, you know, the still prevailing sense that, you know, they're backward, they're, you know, they don't get what progress is. They don't know how to, how to use the new technologies. And, you know, and I mean, we see that here in the U.S. and we certainly see that in, in Latin America as well. And that, of course, makes the stigmatization and demonization part of it easier as well. Um, and you know, when you have, when, if, if cases do get, end up in before juries say it makes it easier to get a conviction often, I think, because right, there's these perceptions of who these people are, the same things that we see, you know, in the U S of course, with, you know, with, with black people, <laughs> right. Who are criminalized, mm-hmm. um, and the sort of assumption that they're criminals because of, of, of their race. So that's certainly a dynamic at play, you know, and then with regard to the sort of corporate government, um, links both most sort of on the local level and the more global level you know i think one of the things that i um include in the piece is uh some some words of uh words of wisdom i'll say from from gustavo castro soto who's a mexican activist and pretty well known throughout the region for his you know activism and and research on free trade agreements you know transnational corporations operations in, in not just in Mexico, but throughout the region. And, you know, as, as he explained, as I quoted him in the article, the, the kinds of free trade agreements, um, that have been signed in, you know, in the last decade or so have put in place, uh, you know, these, these binding agreements that require, essentially require local governments to criminalize, <laughs> you know, to, mm-hmm. to sum it up, sum it up quickly, right? So that, you know, if a protest against a road project blocks construction of the road, the company in charge of building that road, say, can sue the government for not doing enough to open the way for, you know, for investment as as laid out in a free trade agreement, you know. And so then the government, right, to avoid that kind of thing, makes it illegal to block a road. Right. Um you know, and that's sort of a simplistic way of describing it, but, but the fact is that, you know, that, that kind of dynamic has, has led to a rapid increase in recent years of, of laws that are pretty draconian in the ways that they restrict protest and restrict activism. Um, you know, and certainly Gustavo and his research is very clear, um, in his belief of that is a lot of that's directly resulting from these kinds of, you know, global, Sometimes bilateral, but you know the sort of global trend of, of free trade agreements that that essentially require those kinds of restrictions to be operable. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a really crucial connection um, that he makes for us. And I mean, it's not to say that this is like the sole cause of developing sure. state policies, but to make that you know that's that's a really yeah. That I mean, I I um I had not made really that connection between like how the corporate uh, presence like 
really does accelerate um, this kind of aggressive criminalization um, before this. So yeah, that was, that was really fantastic. And and he's certainly someone to keep an eye on. Um, so, I mean, we talked a little bit before we started recording about, you know, tactics that maybe fall outside the like strict realm of policing, but, you know, I thought it would be interesting just to explore um, other, other th- tactics for, for repressing um, activists and, and environmental human rights defenders Um that you've encountered in your work um, that maybe didn't like fall strictly under this kind of criminalization umbrella or, or were maybe more tangentially related? Sure. Well, I mean, of course you have, you know, the murders <laughs> of, yeah. you know, environmental and, and land rights activists, um, you know, global witness has over the last few years done a pretty comprehensive study of, of the murders of environmental and land rights activists throughout the world. Um, I think I cite remember quickly some of their statistics in this report and um, worked with a couple of, with, with their uh, main researchers on that uh, in, in at Peace Brigades International many years ago. So no, they do really great work. <laughs> and, you know, and so that's, I mean, that, right. Murders is obviously sort of the most stark and, and definitive and final way to, you know, to, to repress an individual's activism and of course has its own ripple effect of creating a lot of fear amongst their community and their organization. Um, you know, and, and, and particularly when, you know, there has been a murder within a, you know, community organization, it then becomes even easier to, to intimidate and silence because with, you know, even just a death threat or even, you know, a, a specious, you know, criminal charge can have the effect of silencing, particularly when they know that the final end result could be a murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and another, you know, another thing that, that we're seeing around the world and, and, and certainly in Latin America as well is, and this is really a decriminalization, but is the, the restriction on the operation of, you know, human rights, environmental rights, indigenous rights organizations. So it might be, you know, restrictions making it harder for nonprofit, you know, society organizations to, to form or stay open, restricting the kinds of funds that they can receive. You know, in, in some countries, they're not able to receive funding from, from outside the country. In the case of Ecuador under the Korea administration, some allies of, of Amazon watches uh, were actually shut down. Uh, in 2009 because of, well, their analysis was because of speaking out too much about the government. <laughs> and, and to name another example from Ecuador, the, the national indigenous organization, you know, has had problems getting their elected leadership from within their, their, you know, the bases of indigenous communities throughout the country and, um, and including Amazon have had difficulties getting their elected leadership recognized because the government had other leadership they wanted to recognize that that last piece in in particular has changed with the new government. But, but those kinds of, you know, tactics have definitely been used as well. The article does a really great job of, 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 um, tracing a a common thread through, uh, a quite big region with a lot of um, different dynamics going on. But I guess, um, I'd be interested to hear, you know, where specifically you are looking um, as the trend develops. Um, 
where you're looking to uh, be of use, you know, in your capacity uh, as the communications manager at, at Amazon Watch, but also just um, kind of in general as, as the situation develops, um, what sorts of moves on the part of different states you're watching. Um, and then also, you know, um, Lolita, the woman that you talked to in Guatemala, um, talks about community building as, as a way to, um, uh, to kind of heal and to resist the sort of onslaught of, um, stress that comes with this sort of harassment. And she, and you end the article with a really beautiful, um, solicitation from her to she asks you know to to join to join us um create community with us i invite all who read this article to join with us um which i thought was really beautiful and and perhaps um you can add a postscript to her invitation and and suggest some ways that naklistas can in fact join um with people like lolita uh and can contribute to the struggle sure well yeah as, as a as the um, communications and other <laughs> other hats I sometimes wear manager here at here at Amazon Watch, you know, obviously my focus is is large in the Amazon basin region. So, you know, even writing this article was a was a, a dip back into other parts of the region mm-hmm. that I have since taking this job been less been less involved in. So I think probably my, you know, my main focus will continue to be on, on the Amazon Basin region, given, given capacities, but, but also having, you know, developed friendships over the years with people like Gustavo Castro and Lita Chavez, sort of, of course, keeping an eye on their, on their cases. And, and then certainly just from what I've been able to observe in my reading and research, you know, Honduras is a, is a country that is high up on the list of all kinds of human rights abuses. So definitely one to keep an eye on. And here at Amazon Watch, I've been working with my colleagues at making sure that we are finding ways for individuals to, to take action in support of our indigenous allies and in some cases non-indigenous allies that we work with in the region who are at risk. So, you know, we have an action, a take action page on our website that that, that is a source of actions that people can take. Um, I'd also recommend, um, I just actually joined the board of the Latin American Working Group, LOG, and they also are a good source of, of information and, and actions to be taken, particularly geared towards U.S. policy in the region. And of course, that overlaps with economic policy. And part of the reason I joined the board and part of the reason I was asked to join the board was to help the organization do more work on you know, in the environmental indigenous rights world. And so we can hope to see more of that coming from log in the future soon too. Fantastic. Oh, that sounds great. Um, Mara, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Happy to do it. That was Mara Burse of Amazon Watch, and this has been Nakla Radio. Myra's article covers a lot more than we were able to get to in our conversation, so I encourage you to read the whole thing. Uh, it's up on nakla.org to read for free. Also, a quick reminder to rate and review and subscribe to Nakla Radio on iTunes. That helps us reach more people. Uh, Nakla is also online at facebook.com slash Nakla and on Twitter at Nakla. That's N-A-C-L-A. Nakla Radio is produced by me. Our editor is Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Horocho. 
Los plumajes nuevos, coco. 